0: Please join me for a word of prayer as we remain standing. God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Uh, happy Easter. We are glad that you are here with, uh, mindful that we always have a few guests uh, with us on Easter morning, just a brief word of explanation of what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're gonna look at uh, this passage of scripture which we heard read to us. This passage which recounts Mary Magdalene and her encounter at a tomb. Christians have always believed that the Bible has a unique role and unique uh, voice in uh, our lives. We believe that the Bible in a unique way reveals something about God, uh, something about ourselves. And so we're going to approach this passage of Scripture and just ask some basic questions and try to think together of what does this passage say to us and what does it mean to us. So let's jump right in. One of the first steps that we should take in looking at this text or really any other text to discern what the author is saying is just look for some words that are repeated, and by that standard, well, the the one of the main points of this passage is pretty easy to discern. Turn with me to the 11th verse of John's gospel, John chapter 20, verse 11. Just look at the word that is repeated time and time again. Mary stood weeping as she wept. Someone asked her not once but twice, why, Mary, are you weeping? It seems to me that the author, John, is Uh, without any subtlety, drawing us to the tears of Mary. Mary, why are you weeping? And that's the question that we're going to ask this morning. We're going to spend about 15 to 20 minutes exploring this question, Mary, why are you weeping? And in, in order to guide our thoughts, we're going to focus on the two questions that Jesus asked of her. And those two questions, if you see in your text, verse 15, Jesus asks, woman, why are you weeping? And then secondly, whom are you seeking? You know, Jesus asked over 300 questions in the gospels. It's strange to think that someone who knew everything asked so many questions, over 300 questions. And here are two questions that he asked. The first, why are you crying? What's wrong? Why are you sad? The second question is, the first question addresses the problem. What's wrong? The second question addresses, or at least hints at the solution. What will make it better? Whom are you seeking? So those are the two questions that we're going to consider together. Why are you sad, Mary? And what will make you happy? What will make it better? So let's ask Mary. Mary, why are you sad? So a little bit of background about Mary. Mary... uh, well there are a number of Marys in the Bible actually. There's probably four or five Marys. Jesus' mother was named Mary. So sometimes it's hard to keep the different Marys straight. But here's what we know about Mary for certain. There may be other overlaps of other Marys, but what we know for certain is this, that Mary was healed by Jesus. That's recorded in Luke's gospel. Mary became a follower of Jesus. Uh, It seems to me for some reason that whenever there's a modern depiction of Mary and Jesus, there's always some sort of romance uh, under the, yeah, a, a current of romance between Jesus and Mary. Don't believe it. That's, I don't know why, but that's always. There's nothing to suggest in the text that that was anything uh, other than just a Hollywood, uh, a Hollywood make-believe. She was a devoted follower of Jesus. And it appears to be that she was especially devoted to, to Jesus, and I say especially devoted for two reasons. Number one, she was the last, one of the last at the, at the cross. So if you were to back up a few passages, we find that Mary, Jesus' mother, another Mary, and Mary Magdalene, I told you there were a lot of Marys, uh, were standing, keeping watch by the cross. While almost everyone else had fled, still Mary Magdalene remains. And her devotion is again evidence proven by our story this morning. Last at the cross, first at the grave. First at the grave on Sunday morning. Now just a little bit of background, Jesus died on a Friday evening, The sun was setting, so the people standing vigil, Mary being one of those, could not do for the body what should have been done. And so they placed the body of Jesus in a quickly, uh, in, in a tomb. Saturday being a day of rest, nothing was done. And then Sunday morning, today, Mary and a cohort of others were the first to the grave to do what should have been done on Friday, on Friday evening. And now, in addition to the horrors that she just witnessed, and the crucifixion was just a horror, uh, in addition to the horror that she has just witnessed, uh, she encounters an added insult to injury. And that is, she can't even find the body. So let's ask the question again, Mary, why are you weeping? Well, two reasons why Mary is weeping. First, uh, she saw the stark finality of death. She saw Jesus die. Uh, She saw that stark transition that occurs in even the most peaceful of passing, when the pulse stops, breath stops, and everything that made the person who they are ceases to be. That happens in every passing, regardless of how peaceful, and Jesus' departure was anything but peaceful. She is weeping because she saw the finality of death. And now she is confronted by his absence. And I don't simply mean the absence of the body. I mean the absence that would be present even if the body were present. As she looks in that empty tomb, she weeps because she encounters a hole, an empty space which a few days ahead, a few days previously, had been filled by a person, and that hole will never be filled again. As she is weeping, For the same reason that you and I or anyone who has ever stood where Mary stands will weep. We will weep because of the finality of death and the presence of an absence, the presence of a hole that had been filled, yet will never be filled again, at least not in the same way. That is why Mary is weeping. That is why we all weep when we stand where Mary stood. A scholar named Derek Kidner asked this question. He said, if every card I play will eventually be trumped, why do I even play the game? That's not a political reference. He's referring to the game of bridge, in which the highest card of any hand may be beaten by the lowest card of a special suit or what's called a trump suit. And so if every relationship I have ends here, if every it's all going to be Trump. Why do I even play the game? Unless you have the good fortune, like the couple ex- that uh, is depicted in the uh, movie, The Notebook. Gentlemen, Notebook. No? <laughs> watch the movie, The Notebook, with your wives. My wife made me watch it. And it's a very touching movie in which uh, husband and wife die together, hand in hand, and they sail off into the sunset like Canadian geese. <laughs> Unless that is your good fortune, then this is your reality. One not saying goodbye to another. Every relationship, every friendship, every marriage, every paternal relationship ends here. One saying goodbye to another. So again, to quote that Scholar, if this is how it all ends, why even play the game? Uh, there's a scene from The Notebook to The Men in Black. Men in Black? Yeah. Men in Black, there's this uh, old weather-beaten cop, Tommy, played by Tommy Lee Jones. And there's this uh, cocky rookie named Will Smith. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character is looking at, uh, forlornly at a pitcher. Uh, apparently someone that he had loved and lost. And Will Smith looks to, uh, Will Smith's character places his arm around Tommy Lee Jones and says something, some platitude like, well, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And Tommy Lee Jones' character turns to Will Smith and says, just try it, (laughs) try loving and losing. And so that's why Mary cries, because she's tried it, she's experienced it, she's loved and she is lost. And that's why she cries and that's why anybody cries when they stand by a grave, because of the finality of death and because of the presence of an absence. Second question, whom are you looking for? Or, as I've expanded that question, what will make it better? Mary, you're crying now, but what will make you stop crying? What will dry your tears? You're sad now, what will make you happy? Now, of those 300 questions I referenced that Jesus made, some of them are very obvious. Some of them are simple questions with obvious answers. For instance, Jesus asks a blind man, What do you you want from me? He asks a sick man, Do you want to be well? And here, Jesus asks a seemingly very obvious question to a woman grieving at a graveside: What do you want from me? A simple question with a, or what do you, what will make you happy? A simple question with a fairly obvious answer. If we could speculate, what would Mary say? What would you say? What will make me happy is if we could back up the clock 36 hours. If the ordeal that I just saw, I never saw. Of what he endured, he never endured. What would make me happy if the absence that I now feel was once again restored by the presence of the one I lost? That is what would make me happy. An obvious... Answer to a simple question. But let's assume that Jesus did not ask simple questions with obvious answers for the sake of a rhetorical question. Let's assume that he asked the sick man if he wanted to be well for a reason. Let's assume that he asked the grieving woman, what would it take to feel better for a reason? And I think if you scratch a little bit at the surface of that hypothetical answer, scratch. A little bit deeper and you will find that Mary's hypothetical answer to the question of what will make it better is woefully inadequate. What will make it better to have what I lost restored? No it won't. It will not. You see there's actually another Bible story in which someone had a loss and their loss was restored. It's the story of Lazarus. It occurs a few chapters earlier in John chapter 10 and in the story of Lazarus There is a grieving woman named Mary, not this Mary, different Mary. And this grieving woman has lost her brother. Jesus hears about the grieving woman and goes to the tomb. And as the tomb, Jesus calls to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does come out. And Mary, who was crying, is now happy again. Yay. Listen to the story of Lazarus from the perspective of this poem, though. Your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay. Lazarus is at rest, seemingly safe in the dark bay, but a ripple stirs, so you obediently put out a second time into sea. Well knowing that your death in vain died once, now you must do it all again. Poor Lazarus, poor Mary, poor Martha. Great Lazarus is back, but what you endured, you will endure again. The tears you shed, you will only have to shed again. The death that died, died in vain, and now you have to do the whole thing over again. The restoration of Lazarus, the restoration of what was lost, does not restore happiness or in any permanent way. It just delays sadness. Every parent of every sick child does not simply want their sick child to be well. We want our sick child to be well and never to be sick again. Mary, again, what will make it better? What will replace your sadness with happiness? What Mary wants, what you and I want, what we all uh, will want when we stand where Mary stood is something that you've never experienced, something that defies logic. We want something, we want not just the restoration of what we lost, we want what was lost restored to us, never to be lost again. I think if you push a little bit further, what you really want is you want Easter. Let me quickly explain why Easter is so important. Jesus died on a Friday, he died an innocent man. He died on behalf of sinful humanity. More on that if you come back and visit us on other Sundays. He lay in the grave on Saturday. On Sunday morning, a small group of of people, led by Mary, discovered something that defied logic. Discovered something never before experienced they discovered that God raised Jesus from the grave. Not as a ghost, but as a person, flesh and blood with scars in his hand from the ordeal that he had just endured, but not just back as he was. A new life, a resurrected life, never to, be, never to die again, never to be touched by sin or sorrow, or never to, never to die again, a new type of life. That is what happened on Easter morning. The door that had been shut, the tomb was opened. Great, you may think. Good for him, what does that have to do with me? Good question, I'm glad that you asked. Other passages of the Bible say that the death that Jesus died, he died for me. Now the life that he lives, he lives for me. And one day, the Bible tells us that Christ will return. And when he does, All things will be restored to him. And in some way that baffles the imagination, we who call on his name will be like he is. A new life, a resurrected life, a life never to be touched by sin, sorrow, or death anymore. Philip Yancey, the author, writes, Because of Easter, I can hope that the tears I shed, the pain I endure, the heartache of loss over friends and loved ones, all these will become memories, just like Jesus' scars. Now, scars never completely go away, but scars don't hurt anymore. We will have recreated bodies, a recreated heaven and earth. We will have an Easter start. Jesus cracked the seal on the lid, that had never been broken and in doing so, paved the way for you and me to experience the same. That is why Easter matters. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what you really want when you stand where Mary stood, not just to have the lost thing restored, but to have the lost restored, never to be taken away? It also sounds a little bit like a fairy tale, but it sounds like a, a hunger that will never be satisfied. The author C.S. Lewis argued for the reality of what I've just described here, the reality of paradise, by saying that just because you are hungry does not prove that you will get food. But it does suggest that you and I live in a world in which our bodies are repaired by sustenance. And there is something that food that does exist. In the same way, he writes that just because you hunger for paradise is no guarantee that you will make it there. But it is a suggestion that such a place does exist and some people will be there. Let me draw our thoughts to a conclusion. The weeping of Mary. All of us at some point in time will stand where Mary stood, weeping by a grave. And I do not mean to be dramatic or stark or sober on an Easter morning, but it is a reality of life. And all of us will have a good answer to the first question, why are you crying? Every one of us can answer that question, hands down. But the second question, what will make it better? What will make you happy? What will replace your tears with joy? I want you to know that there is a good answer to that question. It's not an answer that immediately takes all tears away like the wave of a magic wand. It's not an answer that suggests that tears are inappropriate for those who trust in Christ. But there is an answer. Mary, let's ask it again one last time, Mary friends. What will make it better? What will turn sadness into joy? What will replace dry tears and dry them forever? That's a question that you and I will face, and this passage provides a good answer, and this is the answer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave on Easter morning and his defeat of death and the resurrection to life that he secured for all who in faith look to him.